Uh, good evening, and thank you for coming. Uh, again, I'm Trevor Plant. I'm the chief of reference at the National Archives in DC, so uh, two blocks from here, right down the street. Uh, this is the view from my window. When I look out my window, I see uh, this museum. Uh, during the Civil War, this was actually uh, the patent office and for a time operated as a, as a, a union hospital. So it's even a bigger honor to be here uh, talking to you guys this evening. Uh, the main show for tonight is William Tecumseh Sherman. Um, for people that are not you know, into the Civil War, I know that's hard to believe that there are people that aren't into the Civil War, um, when they hear Sherman's name, I was thinking about this last week. There's probably three things that come to mind. Um, he burned Atlanta. They saw Gone with the Wind. Everybody knows Sherman you know, burned Atlanta if they, they saw the movie. Uh, he's famous for the March to the Sea, or they may know him for his famous quote, War is Hell. So hopefully after this evening, half an hour, I'll be able to uh, enlighten you a little bit more than those three things. Um, we'll have time for questions at the end. All right, try to have, make time. So I'll talk fast. Uh, William Tecumseh Sherman was born uh, February 8, 1820, in Lancaster, Ohio. His father was Charles Robert Sherman. He was a lawyer and spent time on the Ohio Supreme Court. His mother was Mary Hoyt Sherman. His father died in 1829. Uh, Sherman was only nine years old. Uh, the depressing part when I, was, when I was looking into his parents is that his father died when he was 41, and I'm 42, so that was... Uh, <laughs> little eye-opener for me learning that his dad died a year younger than I am currently. Um, he left his widow with 11 children. The two oldest were old enough to go off on their own. Uh, the three youngest stayed with their mother. The six in between uh, were sent out to various uh, friends and family to take care of. Sherman fell into this middle group of the six children. Uh, he went to stay with Thomas Ewing, who was another lawyer in Lancaster, Ohio, uh, very well known, uh, spent some time as a uh, Whig senator from Ohio. Eventually, he'll become the first uh, Secretary of the Interior. And him and his wife would have seven children. So one dies in infancy. So with, um, with Tecumseh Sherman, there will be seven children that they're, they're taking care of. It was, his, it was Sherman's father's wish that he would go into either the Army or the Navy, be educated, by the United States and either go into the Army or the Navy. His mom didn't want him going to sea, so that left the Army. He went to West Point. The earliest you can go into West Point is 16, so that's when he went in, was uh, at the age of 16. And if you've seen Sherman's memoirs, there's two volumes, and they're, they're pretty thick. He only gives about a half a page to his time at West Point. So I decided to pick out just a, a short quote from that, since he didn't really address it much. And he says, at the academy, I was not considered a good soldier, for at no time was I selected for any office, but remained a private throughout the whole four years. Then as now, neatness in dress and form, with a strict conformity to the rules, were the qualifications required for office. And I suppose I was found not to excel in, in any of these. What he's, what he's not saying is that he did, did excel at, ac at academics. And he actually finished fourth out of a class of 43. Originally, in his class were over uh, 100 people. So that got whittled down to, to over 50%. Um, because he had so many demerits, he dropped from fourth to sixth. So he actually graduated sixth in his class. Uh, so that'll take place in June of 1840. He'll be commissioned a second lieutenant in the third US artillery. 
He sent to Florida, and he'll spend time there during the Second Seminole War. He doesn't see action in Florida, so he's, he's not getting any battle experience when he's in Florida. He'll then spend some time in Georgia and South Carolina, and his time in Georgia will serve him uh, during the Civil War. He almost had a photographic memory when it came to, to, to terrain and road features. And so while he was going through Georgia during the Civil War, he would talk about knowing places based on when he was there as a young uh, army officer. During the Mexican War, much to his chagrin, he was sent to California. So he wasn't in Mexico during the Mexican War. He was sent to California, spent most of the time in the city that uh, became, it was renamed San Francisco. He was there in 1848. He was one of the army officers that verified the, the discovery of gold that then resulted in the uh, wave of people rushing to California the next year, hence the 49ers and the football team. Um, and it's something that he regretted. His, his experience during the Mexican War, he really regretted because officers that he, he either uh, graduated with or that served prior to him or after him from West Point, graduated before or after him at West Point, were gaining valuable military experience as far as battle experience in Mexico. So they're writing to each other about their experiences. Here he is in San Francisco. Nothing is happening in San Francisco. It's all administrative work that he's doing. So he's asking himself questions based on what type of man he is, and he feels that he's, he won't know the answer until he's in battle. So it's almost like the, the, the um, fight or flee scenario where he doesn't know, is he going to be a coward when he's faced with his first battle? Is he going to be brave? Is he going to be there to support his men? And they'll, they'll look up to him. So this is kind of an ongoing thing throughout the late 1840s and into the 1850s. Um, he ends up resigning. He gets a, a, a good financial opportunity in the early 1850s. So he resigns his Army commission uh, as a captain in 1853. He'd gotten married in 1850, uh, which would be seen as kind of an odd arrangement today where he actually married uh, his younger foster sister. So it was one of the Ewing girls who was four years his junior. So they kind of grew up in the same house together, and that's who he end up, ends up marrying. It's Ellen Ewing, uh, who was Eleanor Boyle Ewing. He became a bank manager in San Francisco, um, then moves on to uh, work in a bank in New York. The banking industry really isn't his cup of tea, so he dabbles in being a lawyer in Leavenworth, Kansas in 1858. In 1859, he has an opportunity to, to not rejoin the Army, but to get kind of the military uh, flavor back, where he gets an opportunity to go to Louisiana and become a superintendent of the Louisiana State Seminary of Learning and Military Academy in Pineville, Louisiana. Still exists today, except it's now known as Louisiana State University, so it's now LSU. He's a superintendent um, in 1859, 1860, and then early 1861, and it gives him a very unique um, perspective on what's happening. Here you have uh, someone that's from Ohio. He's very pro-union and he's in the heart of Dixie. He's having dinner with slave owners and plantation owners and businessmen and their families deep in Louisiana, and he's hearing how they feel about slavery, how they feel about secession, how they feel about the federal government, how they feel about Louisiana breaking off from the Union. So he's, he's getting a, a very unique perspective that a lot of people in the North are not getting. They're just getting bits and pieces from newspapers. Newspapers uh, in the day are very political, so 
the newspaper you're most likely to read is one that you're in line with politically, and so you may be reading things that they want you to hear, so you don't know the real picture of what's going on. And this will actually play into um, some of his decisions early in 1861. As, right around when Louisiana is getting ready to break away from the Union, uh, the militia goes in and they seize an arsenal in Baton Rouge. They take the weapons to uh, Sherman's military academy, and they want him to sign for these weapons that you know, shortly before belonged to the US government. Sherman has a real problem with this. He resigns uh, from being superintendent, and he proceeds to DC, where his younger brother is uh, a congressman from Ohio. He's uh, moving up in the Republican Party. He gets him a sit down with President Lincoln, who was only recently uh, in office. And Sherman doesn't really like what he hears. He doesn't think that the, that the North is really preparing like what he's seen in the South. What he saw in the South was a lot of people that were behind their cause and were already starting to drill. They already formed militia units. They were drilling in the streets. They were drilling in the fields. He didn't see any of this happening in the North, and it, and it concerns him a lot. As late as probably December 1860, he really wanted to be back in the U.S. Army. Once January, February, early 61 rolls around, he has a change of heart, and he's really concerned about his reputation as an Army officer. So he's not back in the Army yet, but he's worried about what his reputation would be if he rushed back into the Army. What he predicted would happen is if there was a war, people that had regular Army experience would be called up, but then they would be put in charge of volunteers that didn't know anything. And then if something went awry, then they would quickly be blamed, and then they'd be drummed out of the army, and their reputation would be shot. So this is what he predicted would happen if he rushed back. So he took kind of a wait-and-see approach. Left D.C., went to St. Louis, worked very briefly for a street rail company, and all of his friends are writing to him and saying, you're crazy, what are you doing? You know, for years we've been listening to you talk about how you wished you were back in the army. Now there's this opportunity. Your nation needs you. Why are you not coming, you know, rushing back to join the army? So finally, he agrees to come back. He's commissioned a colonel in the 13th U.S. Infantry, which is a new infantry regiment that just formed. Uh, they bring him back uh, east in June. They make his commission effective May 14, 1861. Uh, shortly thereafter, we have the Battle of um, First Bull Run, or Manassas, depending on which side of the Potomac River you tend to hail from. Um, and the thing that I love, and I need to thank the Portrait Gallery for doing this, is... Sherman is right where he wants to be right now. He's totally surrounded by Confederates. <laughs> There's two Confederates on this side and two Confederates on this side, but he's bookended. This is basically Sherman's Civil War in bookend form. Stonewall Jackson is at First Manassas. He's on Henry House Hill, and that's where he gets his nickname, Stonewall. Um, Sherman is in charge of, this was kind of his nightmare come true. He was a regular Army officer that was put in charge of a brigade of all volunteers. So we had all volunteers, and some of them were 90-day men that were kind of looking at the calendar, like, when can I get out of the Army? His force was one, of the, was one of the Union forces that was trying to take Henry House Hill that Stonewall Jackson was on. So this is his first um, battle during the Civil War, like most uh, people that were, were in early on. So this is kind of the, that bookend. On this side, you have Joseph E. Johnston, which will be the end of the story, which I'll get to um, in a few minutes. So this is perfect. You have the beginning and the end of Sherman's Civil War uh, right here. So as we know, um, Manassas is a Confederate victory. 
A lot of people came, uh, the famous story, you know, they brought picnic baskets and they were out on the hill to watch what they thought would be a very short battle. The North would win, Civil War would be over, everybody goes home, no harm, no foul, all the southern states would come back into the Union. As we know, that didn't happen. It becomes a federal retreat that, that you know, some describe as a stampede as the Union forces are stampeding their way back into D.C., uh, for Sherman's forces, they were, they were stationed at a, at a fort that's in today uh, Roslyn, for those of you that know the area, right across uh, the river from uh, Georgetown. And so that's where he, he basically goes to where they, where they started from. For him personally, he gets high marks from McDowell, who was the Union commander at Manassas, and others wrote um, of how he did in battle, and this was his chance where he found out that he was brave in battle and that his men uh, did follow the, him, even though they were volunteers, and a lot of them were, uh, did tend to run and didn't fare so well. So even though um, some of the Union forces didn't fare so well, he fared pretty well um, individually. An opportunity came up a couple months after that where um, Robert Anderson, uh, Fort Sumter fame, is put in charge of a, uh, of a command at West, which is going to uh, be headquartered in Louisville, Kentucky, they give Anderson the choice of three brigadier generals that he can bring with him as part of this command. Um, Sherman was recently promoted to brigadier general volunteers. Anderson and he knew each other uh, before the war, so Anderson picked Sherman and two other officers, and he wanted Sherman as second in command. They go to Louisville. Kentucky's a mess. Uh, there's a lot of pressure on whoever's in charge of Kentucky. It's not clear if it's going to go Union, if it's going to go to the Confederacy. Uh, so Anderson bows out very quickly and then recommends that Sherman take over the job. This was Sherman's worst nightmare. Sherman did not, for whatever reasons, and it, it varies to different biographies that you read, he did not want to be the main guy in 1861. He was fine being the second banana. He was fine being the guy supporting the guy. He did not want to be the guy. And he told the President of the United States that. He said, do not put me in charge of a large command. I don't want it. And he would say years later that the President promised him that they sent him, him to Kentucky, and then right out, out of the get-go, he's right where he didn't want to be. He's now in charge of all of Kentucky. Um, kind of the facts of the case, uh, he wasn't sleeping, he wasn't eating, he was overworking, and historians still debate whether he went insane, went temporarily insane, if there was insanity already in the family, and he was just kind of uh, predisposed to that condition. Um, others say that he had a nervous breakdown, so depending on who you read, different things happen to Sherman in Kentucky. Uh, what we do know is people are writing to D.C. saying that he's, and they're using different euphemisms, you know, lost his mind, out of his mind, not handling the job well. His problem in Kentucky was he saw you know, rebels behind every tree. He was convinced that, that Kentucky was easily going to go to the Confederacy, and he kept saying that they needed more people, that he was convinced that there weren't enough people for the Union to hold Kentucky in the Union. Um, one of the things that, that made it worse for him was the Secretary of War at the time, Simon Cameron, came through, actually on his way to visit another commander. Um, Sherman convinced him to spend the night and to go into a big discussion of what was happening in Kentucky. With the Secretary of War were several aides. One of the aides turned out to be a newspaper reporter. Sherman didn't know it was a newspaper reporter. So he's spilling his guts to this group saying, this is what my situation is. This is what I think the Confederate situation is. This is how many men we need. This is what's happening. So then the newspaper reporter writes, Sherman's crazy. 
and then that's where it gets in the newspaper that Sherman's, Sherman is insane and that he's gone nuts. Uh, shortly after that, he's removed from that office, understandably. Uh, he gets sent to St. Louis under Henry Halleck, who had befriended, um, actually on the ship um, to uh, California back in the 1840s is where he met Henry Halleck. Henry Halleck kind of takes him under his wing, sees what kind of physical condition and mental condition he's in. He's, he said, take some time off, go home. So he goes back to Lancaster, takes some time off, recuperate, feels better, comes back, they give him some side work in St. Louis. Um, eventually, um, he'll be put with the Army of West Tennessee, which will become the, the Army of the Tennessee under Ulysses S. Grant. So he's at Shiloh. He's there for the first day. And after the fact, he's going to get a lot of criticism for not being prepared uh, for an attack on the morning of April 6th. Um, Sherman himself wrote he didn't want to overreact because all these people were saying he was overreacting in Kentucky and that he was crazy. So he didn't want to overreact when people were coming in and saying, hey, there's a rebel army out there and they're going to attack us. So as people were coming in with this intelligence the night before, he's saying, don't worry about it. It's not that big of a deal. And they do get attacked the next morning. Um, they're basically run through their camp that day. There's a big counterattack the next day. Sherman does an excellent job on the second day at Shiloh. He's wounded twice. He's wounded in the hand and the shoulder. He has three horses shot from underneath him. And when you read different accounts, he was pretty much everywhere at all times. So he really does shine at Shiloh. So he's up, he's down, now he's back up again. So it's kind of a, a, a touch-and-go situation as far as his career. Um, he's then put in charge of, of Memphis, the city of Memphis. So it was military control over what really is a southern city. So he was dealing with everything from dealing with prostitution and people trying to get in and out um, contraband, bringing gunpowder in and out and different supplies. So they had roadblocks. So he's dealing with all forms of government. Um, and when you read his memoirs, he did a great job. He thought he did a great job. He thought everybody in Memphis loved him and that they were sad to see him go. Uh, when you read accounts from different people that were in Memphis, it's not quite that rosy of a picture but he probably did the best he could with the situation that, um, that he was under. So that was October and December of 1862. Um, then he gets pulled um, back under Grant, and they start the Vicksburg campaigns, and basically, just in a very brief nutshell, they tried all different ways to come at Vicksburg. So Chickasaw uh, Bayou was late December. Uh, they're trying to come from the north, cross the river, and then attack, and it's a huge debacle. Uh, Sherman's forces, he, he, he um, undergoes severe casualties, and there's over 1,000 casualties. The Confederates, it's like 60 casualties. I mean, it's, it's a huge difference. Um, so he gets blasted in the paper for this, that it should have never made the attack. Uh, it's not until the spring that they start another campaign against Vicksburg uh, in force. And what they're actually going to do, if this is Vicksburg, instead of coming from the north, they're going to come across this side of the river, come down from the south, come up, and then attack it from the east. Then that turns into the Siege of Vicksburg, which surrenders on July 4th, 1863. So Sherman's on the rise, stars on the rise again at this point. Basically from here on, as Grant's star rises, so does Sherman. So Grant and Sherman are going to start to rise together um, from Vicksburg on. Um, he's not at the surrender of Vicksburg. Grant actually sent him, after Pemberton surrendered, Grant sent him to kind of chase after Joseph E. Johnston, gentleman on Sherman's right, um, to try to make sure that he's not going to be um, any influence on, on what takes place. 
So the next major engagement that, that, that he's involved in is the Battle of Chattanooga. And I'd said that he was kind of rising as Grant rises. Henry Halleck was in the West. He was brought east and put in charge of all of the Union armies. Grant then ascends into Halleck's place, is in charge of most of the Western armies. Sherman takes Grant's place, and now he's uh, Army of the Tennessee. At Chattanooga, a very interesting thing happens. The, the, the plan is, if this is Chattanooga, there's a ridge above Chattanooga. Sherman was supposed to attack the left flank on the top. Uh, George H. Thomas and the Army of the Cumberland were supposed to attack the middle. Sherman was supposed to be the main attack. He's the one that was supposed to break through on the flank. And Thomas was just supposed to be a diversionary tactic. What happens is Sherman's pinned down. Um, nothing really happens at this flank. Thomas breaks through. After the fact, both Grant and Sherman are going to claim that was the plan all along. Um, and he does so in his memoirs, which I'll talk about a, a little bit later. Um, so, yeah, so it was a little Monday morning quarterbacking where they changed around what they said the game plan was um, and kind of taking away from what Thomas actually accomplished. Thomas actually accomplished a lot by taking, um, taking the ridge line from the center. So now on to um, Georgia. And basically May to September 1864, what you have is Sherman is in charge of uh, three armies at this point. Uh, the Army of the Cumberland, Army of the Tennessee, Army of the Ohio, uh, under George H. Thomas, James McPherson, and John Schofield. And it's basically these three armies against Joseph E. Johnston again and his Army of Tennessee. What you have as he's going through Georgia is he keeps flanking Johnston. So there's no major battle that takes place. Johnston just keeps retreating through Georgia towards Atlanta. So this is Sherman at his best. He's not losing any men. He's gaining ground. And the army was his target. Uh, him and Grant had met at the beginning of 1864. Grant was going to go after Lee. Sherman was going to go after Johnston. They were going to start at the same time. They weren't going after cities. They were going after these two specific armies. So what you had was Johnston kept retreating. And the more he retreated without battle, the more he was upsetting uh, Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy. So the one battle, the major battle that does take place under Johnson is the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain. And a lot of historians say it was a battle that never should have taken place in the first place. Uh, Sherman attacked uh, basically a mountain right up the center, uh, was repulsed, then changes his mind and decides to take his, one of his armies around it. Johnston then sees he's being flanked, retreats. So a lot of historians have, have commented he would have had the same results if he had just tried to flank him in the first place and not, not undergone battle. At this point, um, uh, Jefferson Davis had had it with Johnston, replaces him with John Bell Hood. Um, Hood had served at Gettysburg under Robert E. Lee. Uh, he was at the Battle of Chickamauga. He lost an arm and a leg. And it said that it took four men to strap him to his horse. Um, he then, being a fighting general, that was the whole reason that Jefferson Davis put him in charge of the army, there's, there's several battles that take place around Atlanta. Uh, that, that really, it's just uh, prolonging the inevitable. Eventually, Sherman does make it into Atlanta. Uh, at that point, they have a decision to make. Sherman really, as soon as he's in Atlanta, he wants to bust out to the sea. He wants to head to Savannah and start cutting his way through Georgia. Grant and the president are concerned that Hood is still out there. What about Hood's army? As you're taking off, what about Hood? 
So what he decides to do is he's going to leave Schofield behind, he's going to leave Thomas behind, and they can take care of Hood. He then reforms his army into uh, two corps and a left wing under uh, Henry Slocum. Two more corps will go on a right wing under O. Howard, and then he'll have a cavalry force under um, Judson Kilpatrick. He'll take the remaining part of the army and head towards Savannah. So to him, it's all taken care of. He's going to go march to the sea, and Hood will be taken care of. And eventually that's what happens, where um, Hood is is taken care of at the battles of Franklin and Nashville in Tennessee. Uh, Sherman, this becomes the famous, you know, his troops are burning and pillaging, and this is where you get kind of the, the total war aspect of Sherman. Up to this point, there's been um, kind of minor incidents uh, through Atlanta on what the troops are burning and what the troops are taking. It really, it really goes full bore from Atlanta to Savannah, where you have these two wings that are, you know, they're not side by side. They're spread out pretty far. And so they're basically just carving this huge avenue through the state of Georgia all the way to Savannah. So they reach Savannah. Savannah surrenders on December 21st. There's a famous telegram from Sherman to President Lincoln saying, I offer you the city of Savannah as a Christmas present. And then it has how much uh, weapons and and, uh, different armament that he he had captured uh, for President Lincoln. After Savannah, uh, moving into 1865, um, Grant really wants Sherman to come join him against Robert E. Lee. Grant is pinned down in the siege of Petersburg, south of Richmond. So it's the Army of the Potomac and the Army of Northern Virginia kind of at a stalemate. He really wants Sherman's troops to come up. He wants to put them on ships, have them go by sea, land at City Point, Virginia, and then that'll turn the tide in Virginia. Sherman is opposed to the sea route. He doesn't want, he thinks there's not enough vessels that will take too long and has a variety of reasons why he doesn't like this plan. So he he says, you know, I can get there much faster if we just march there on land. So that's what he does is he goes through South Carolina, through Columbia, and in North Carolina, it eventually ends up in, in Raleigh. Um, in North Carolina, there's a new formed uh, Confederate um, forces under Joseph E. Johnston again. He's brought back by Jefferson Davis. Um, there's a, a small battle at Bentonville, North Carolina. It's going to be the last you know, major engagement that the two will, will fight. Um, Joseph E. Johnson ends up surrendering on April 26, 1865, and it was a very controversial surrender. Robert E. Lee surrenders on April 9, 1865 to Grant, and it was very straightforward. President Lincoln, when they had met at the end of March, let it be known what he wanted the surrenders to look like. Sherman was very proud of himself of the um, initial surrender terms that he came up with with, with um, Joseph E. Johnston and Breckinridge, who just happens to be uh, the gentleman right here. John C. Breckinridge was brought in. He was the Secretary of War at the time. Sherman didn't want to meet with him as Secretary of War. Um, Joseph E. Johnston pointed out, well, he was also a major general in the Confederate Army, so then Sherman said, okay, if he's an Army commander, he can come in and be involved in the surrender as well. The surrender terms that they came up with, Sherman basically let the South off scot-free. He went well beyond Johnston's army surrendering, and he came up with terms that basically said, the the military forces that were there, you can take your arms, return to your states, return your arms to the capitals within your state. As soon as the the, um, elected officials in your state 
uh, sign an oath of allegiance to the United States, your state's back in the Union. So basically, he was making all of these political judgments within the, the uh, surrender terms. This goes to D.C. for the approval of the president, and it is, uh, they go nuts in D.C. when they see this. Uh, Henry Halleck, who's his good friend, is opposed to it. The Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, is opposed to it. And um, at this point, it's, um, President Johnson is also opposed to it. The downside for Sherman is that this makes it into the papers with a lot of um, quotes from both Halleck and the Secretary of War make it into the, in the newspapers, and that doesn't set well with Sherman, who's kind of thin-skinned. Um, I know I'm running out of time, so I'll wrap it up. Um, there's a grand review in D.C. on uh, May 24th, and this is really Sherman at, at kind of the pinnacle with his army. The Army of the Potomac marched down Pennsylvania Avenue on May 23rd. Sherman's army came the next day, and it literally was six and a half hours of men marching down Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, he thinks his, his army career is over at this point. He's getting all this flack from the president. The president really thought he should have gone after Hood in Tennessee, uh, and he's getting flack for the surrender terms uh, in the newspapers across the North, and they really have turned on him. Um, it ends up being the opposite. He's actually promoted to lieutenant general in 1866, and this is, again, because Grant moved up to a four-star, then Sherman became a three-star general. Uh, when Grant became president, uh, Sherman then became commanding general of the Army in 1869, so it's continuing the trend of he keeps filling in for Grant as Grant gets promoted. He doesn't like D.C., so he spends a lot of his time in St. Louis and New York City. He retires from the Army in 1884. Uh, he ends up dying February 14, 1891. Joseph E. Johnston was a pallbearer at his uh, funeral services in New York City. So we have him as a pallbearer. It was cold and windy. Um, story goes, as someone said, you know, General Johnston, it's cold and windy. You should put a hat on. We don't want you to catch a cold. And he said, Sherman wouldn't do it if he was in my place, and I'm not going to put a hat on. He caught a cold and died of pneumonia a couple months after that. Uh, Sherman's body is then buried in St. Louis. And um, I guess I don't have time, really, to talk about his memoir. So I'll talk about the painting real quick. Uh, Oil on Canvas, 1866, by George P.A. Healy, so Peter Alexander Healy. It was donated by um, the youngest child of the Shermans, Philemon Tecumseh Sherman, so he was the youngest of their eight children. It was donated in 1935 to the Smithsonian American Art Museum and then later transferred to the, the Portrait Gallery. There was actually three identical portraits that were done. This is the one that was given to General Sherman. Uh, the gallery has all three. In 1868, Healy also did a oil on canvas of Mrs. Sherman. Uh, that same year, in 1868, he also did a famous painting called The Peacemakers, which I've seen a lot recently because there's been a lot on Lincoln on the last few weeks, where it's um, President Lincoln, General Grant, General Sherman, and Admiral David Dixon Porter around the, the River Queen at the end of um, March 1865, where they're discussing... Um, what the final plan is going to be to wrap up with these various campaigns to wrap up the Civil War. So, real quick, if you see Matthew Brady photos of Sherman in 1864 and 65, he does not have this face. This is a very, like, gentle-looking Sherman. If you see him in 64 and 65, it's almost like a scowl, or he has a very determined look on his face, and there's a lot more lines to his face than you see in this, in this painting. I mean, everything else is very Sherman-esque. But the face itself, this is a very gentle-looking man, 
And you, that doesn't really come across if you see, and check them out as you leave, you know, Google it and look up Matthew Brady photos of Sherman. It's 64 and 65, and, and you'll see um, kind of what I'm talking about. This is him as a major general, so that's what the stripes are um, at the top, and so I'll wrap up there. So. Well, yeah. thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.